beloved family and friends in Christ. To our friends who are visiting with us today, I'm Oliver. I'm one of our pastors here in this church, and I welcome you all here this morning. A wonderful, grace-filled new year to all, all of you. It's my privilege and delight and joy to be speaking with you this morning, this first Sunday of the year. As a church, okay, by now you should, we should know this, as a church, our vision is to glorify God by being a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. Then the challenge for us, then, is how do we make this vision a reality in 2014? To help us, we turn to the Gospel of Mark to understand what discipleship is. And this is the final part of the five messages that explore what a disciple is. A quick recap. A quick recap. So far, we see Mark telling us that Christ the King has come. And at His first coming, He ushers in His kingdom. And that God's people are to respond by following Christ our King in discipleship. So disciple-making happens when we help Christians respond to God's grace by following Jesus our King and growing to become like Jesus. And in the previous four messages, we see firstly in Mark 1, how as disciples we are to respond to God's kingdom come by repenting and being continual repenters. In Mark 8, we see how in response to Christ's work on the cross on our behalf, as disciples, we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. In Mark 9, we respond to Jesus' death and resurrection for our sake by following Him in humble discipleship. And in Mark 10 last week, we see that Jesus, as the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. In response to God's grace to us in and through Jesus Christ, we see that as disciples, as we are served by Jesus, we serve others. Finally for today, we will look at Mark 15, Mark 15, where we will see Christ our King, crucified, rejected, and abandoned at the cross. Before we get into today's message, I want to thank Sam Bay and Ikiet for their exposition of this text. It's always my joy as I interact with brothers to learn with brothers who so love God's Word. So let us get started. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you have not left us as we are, but in your grace, you have given us your word that tell us of the wonderful good news of how you rescued and save us. We thank you that your spirit through your word also changes us so that we would more and more be conformed to the image of Christ. God, I pray that as we look into your Bible this morning, I pray that your word be our rule and authority that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide, and that your glory be our first concern. We pray that your Holy Spirit help us to see the truth of your word and the glory of Christ as revealed at the cross. Lord, enable us to see and seek to do your revealed will. We pray this for our good and for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, Amen. 
Leo Tolstoy, a Christian Russian writer who wrote stories and short novels in the 19th, late 19th century to earlier 20th century. He's best known for his novel, War and Peace. Uh, honestly speaking, I haven't read it. It's a really thick novel. But he wrote a short story called Master and Man, which I read. It's a fascinating read. In this story, he writes of a rich Russian landowner, Vasily Andreevich Bruhanov, Russian. Okay? He takes one of his peasant manservant, Nikita, on a short trip across the countryside. They journey to the house of a man who owns a patch of forest. Vasily, he wants to meet this man quickly. The master Vasily, he wants to meet this man quickly so that he could beat his competition and buy the forest. Both Vasily and Nikita find themselves in the middle of a bad snowstorm. But the master Vasily, wanting to close the deal quickly, presses on. They eventually get lost and they try to camp in the midst of a snowstorm. And the peasant Nikita, being inadequately clothed, soon finds himself about to die from the cold. And Vasily, instead of helping, leaves him to die and travels on. However, Vasily gets turned around in a storm and his horse brings him back to the camp where he finds Nikita half-frozen and dying. And the master, Vasily, in a moment of compassion for his peasant, Nikita, works to keep him warm. The master stoops to serve and care for this man. Things get turned upside down. And this is what we see here in Mark chapter 15. Everything we think we know about Jesus from reading the Gospel of Mark before this point gets turned upside down. The king gets crucified as a rebel and criminal. The son gets abandoned and rejected by the father. And the one who came to give eternal life dies. Everything gets turned upside down. As we look at today's text, Mark 15, uh, verses 21, second half of verses 21 to 39, remember then this upside-down nature of the gospel. We see here that the gospel writer Mark told his readers that Jesus, the Messiah King, the Son of God, was crucified, abandoned, and died for sinners so that they would have a way to God. And as we read today's passage, we should confess Jesus Christ as our King and Lord and follow Him in discipleship because His crucifixion, abandonment, and death on the cross provide us the way to God. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. As you do so, do you remember the context of where we are today? For those of you who have been following this series on Mark, Mark starts with a prelude in Mark 1 and introduces us to the person of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah King and the Son of God. And the first half of the book then shows us Jesus, the Messiah King, coming in power and authority. He heals, he casts out demons, he calms the storms, he preaches and teaches with authority that no one else has ever seen. Then in chapter 8 and 10, 
Jesus predicts his coming death and crucifixion three times and gives his instructions on discipleship. And in Mark 10.45, we see the key verse to understanding the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus comes to do. And for the rest of the second half of the Gospel, we see how Jesus suffered opposition and persecution, especially from Jewish religious leaders, who refuses to acknowledge his authority. And this ends up and culminates in the arrest and trial of Jesus. And this is where we are in the story. After the council of the Jewish religious leaders hand him over to Pilate, and after Pilate sentenced Jesus to be crucified. So we pick up the story of how Jesus was crucified in Mark chapter 15, second half of verse 20. Mark 15. And they led him out to crucify him, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We see here Mark announces Jesus' crucifixion with almost an utter objectivity. And they let him out to crucify him. We have to understand that crucifixion is a punishment reserved for non-Roman citizens. And it was one in which excessive cruelty was unleashed on the lowest and most defenseless classes of society. Slaves, violent criminals, prisoners of war. During the first century Roman time, the cross was a symbol, symbol of shame and an instrument of torture, unlike how many of us view it now. It's like a hangman noose, the rope that here in Singapore we use to hang condemned criminal to death. Now imagine wearing that as a jewelry around your neck, a noose for a necklace. But we must not forget the scandal of the cross for the Jews, the thought that God's Messiah King would suffer a cross of shame was unthinkable. For the Romans, it's a ghastly form of death reserved only for condemned criminals. This is scandalous. That is why Paul can confess some 25 years later in 1 Corinthians 1.23, 
we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It appears to be utter foolishness. And after Mark writes of the crucifixion, we read of a certain man, Simon, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross. By then, Jesus has been whipped and beaten, his body broken and bleeding, and is unable to carry the wooden cross beam of the cross. So the Roman soldiers actually press a passerby to carry that for him. And Jesus was brought to a hill outside the city of Jerusalem called Golgotha, an outcropping of rock that was bald as a skull. There they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, which can numb the pain, but Jesus rejects it. And after which the soldiers strip Jesus of his clothes and crucify him, nailing him to the wooden cross. It was the third hour when they crucified him. So Jesus' crucifixion probably took place at 9 a.m. as the Jews count time beginning with sunrise at 6 a.m. As both Roman and Jewish custom requires that the cause of the crucifixion to be fixed on the cross, the inscription, King of the Jews, was hung on the cross. And this was done to taunt Jesus. We do not know who the two robbers are. Mark does not say but because they are condemned criminals, they are sentenced to death. In addition, because the crucifixion was taking was taken place in public sight, the passerbys, people who pass by, continue to mock and make fun of Jesus. Aha, you who will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Even the religious leaders shouts, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even the two robbers who were crucified at his side did the same. Jesus was subject to mockery as he lay dying on the cross. But my friends, the ironic thing here is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the King of Israel. Even in the first half of chapter 15, there, are four, there were four references to Jesus as being king of the Jews. And we see it here in the passage I've just read twice more. Twice more. The inscription of the charge and the taunt of the religious leaders that Jesus is the king of Israel. It's as if the gospel writer Mark wants us to know that Jesus is really the king of the Jews. And if I might add, he is our king as well. And even though everyone reject him, he is king. He is the king of all creation. And you must not miss the irony here. The title given to Jesus as derision, as mocking, as taunting, is actually the real truth of who he is. And Jesus as king, could easily call down legions of angels to free him from the cross. However, he chose not to come down from the cross, but rather be crucified. The king gets crucified as a rebel and criminal. The king gets crucified as a rebel and criminal. You know, I've seen children who have made fun of one another saying, Ah, oh, you're so smart, so clever. 
Okay? It wasn't as if they think that the person they're speaking to was really that smart or clever. It's almost said mockingly to tease and irritate the other person. And I might add, not children, just children, but some youths do that as well. Okay? But what if the person they were taunting was actually smart? But what if the person they were taunting is the top student in his school, scoring top marks for all his subjects? Then their insults become ironic because what was meant to mock and taunt was actually true of the person. And isn't this what we actually see here? Jesus was mocked and taunted as king, but he is actually the king, the long-awaited Messiah King. And friends, isn't this what we sometimes see even today? People think of Christianity as foolishness. That as Christians, we confess a myth, a fable, an imaginary person as God and King. And for my non-Christian friends here with us today, exploring what Christianity is, I urge you not to dismiss Jesus so easily, just as his distractors and opponents did many years ago. What if the irony is that the person you dismiss turns out to be who he really claims to be? I encourage you to be open and seek to find out more the truth of who Jesus really is. And if this is what you want to do, any of the elders and pastors here today will be glad to meet with you. And we also have a seekers class that we are starting up, which you can also attend to find out more about who Jesus is. Make sure you know who he is before you dismiss him. And for my Christian friends, what if you are facing taunts and mocking for being a Christian? Do not give up confessing that Christ is our God and King. Remember that Jesus, our King, was crucified and He stayed up on the cross for our good. Jesus suffered shame and crucifixion for our sake. He gave His life as a ransom for our lives. Have you ever felt abandoned before? No. I vaguely remember how I was as a small boy. I was lost in the supermarket. I think it was Johan, the old Johan at Thompson Road. I recall wandering away from my parents because something had caught my attention. Even as a child, as I was demonstrating some signs of being ADD and having trouble paying attention to a single thing for long. Actually, Pastor Arnold knows this. Because by the 45 minutes during any staff meeting, my mind would start to wander and I gaze over. Okay? So I was demonstrating signs of that. I remember that the sense of fear of being alone and abandoned. I was separated from my father and mother. What if I never see them again? What if they had actually abandoned me and forgotten about me? And yes... As a child, I cried some tears of fear and sorrow. We see here, Jesus too felt abandoned. Abandoned and rejected, but to a far, far greater degree. Read with me in Mark 15 verse 33. This is what Mark continues to tell us. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Mark writes that at the sixth hour, about 12 noon, there came a darkness over the whole land. And this was no ordinary darkness. This was a darkening of the skies at noontime, the brightest time of the day. For those of us who uh, remember the old, what's written in the Old Testament, we recall Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, where the prophet writes, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the skies, darken the earth in broad daylight, and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos, in that context, tells us that this darkness is a sign of God's judgment. This darkness is a warning of God's coming judgment. And at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't be mistaken. This is a loud cry of abandonment and rejection. A cry which some perhaps mistake him crying out to Elijah. And the mocking of Jesus continues as someone comes and offers him some sour wine, a cruel comfort to a righteous man in distress and dying. They even say tauntingly, even as the wine was offered, wait, let us see whether Elijah will take, come to take him down. But what was actually happening here? What is Jesus' cry all about? Mark writes here that Jesus on the cross was forsaken by the Father. Jesus was abandoned on the cross so that we will not be abandoned. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually quoting Psalm 22.1. He was quoting Psalm 22.1. And Psalm 22.1 verse 1 and 2 reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Jesus feels forsaken, rejected, abandoned, unanswered, and alone. At this point, Jesus bears our sins on the cross. And God being holy cannot be in the presence of sin. God being a judge would judge sin. God being holy turned away from Jesus who at this point bore our sins on the cross. And at this point, God was relating to Jesus not so much as a father, but as a judge. And God, as judge, poured out His wrath and anger on Jesus, who bears our sins. We recall Moses writing in Deuteronomy 21-23, Deuteronomy 21-23, For a hangman is cursed by God. For a hangman is cursed by God. 
Jesus bore the curse for our sin on the cross. And God brings His judgment onto Jesus. And Mark writes for us at this point, Jesus cries out, My God, my God. Remember that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is internal, is inter- internal fellowship. Before time eternity began, they were in intimate, happy relationship until all of time eternity future. They will be in this deep, joyous interaction. But at this point, when Jesus took on our sins, His relationship with the Father was broken. God turns away from Jesus. What a great cause. God the Father abandons His Son on the cross. And we see here the great offense of our sins. But Jesus willingly submits to this, the abandonment and rejection, because He knows the Father. He knows His Father and His plans. All was not lost. Jesus quotes only the first verse of Psalm 22, but I believe He had the whole psalm in mind and was meditating on it even as He bore God's wrath and anger on his, in His body. We read further in Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28, which was just read together, we just read together just now. All the earth's ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22 starts with abandonment and rejection, but ends with the affirmation that God rules over all the nations and that people of the nations will come to worship God. It starts with tragedy but ends with in triumph. And we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. Christ was crucified and abandoned on the cross. He dies. But God did not leave Jesus in the grave. God raised Him up on the third day bringing salvation and resurrection life for those who trust in Him. The Son gets abandoned and rejected by the Father so that we will not be abandoned. And if we understand the cause to the Father and to Jesus as He bore our sins on the cross, it should forever mark us. It should change our hearts, affections, and our desires. If we understand the love of the Father for us through the demonstration of Jesus' crucifixion, abandonment, and death, our emotions should be stirred. We should be filled with amazement, with joy, with gratitude that Christ was abandoned so you will not be, so that you will know intimacy with the Father. And after Jesus' cry of abandonment, Mark writes that Jesus dies. We read in Mark 15, verse 37 and 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood facing him and saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Two exceptional events happened at Jesus' death. His death was not the end, but the beginning of something new and amazing. 
The events we see are the tearing of the temple's curtain in verse 38 and the confession of the Roman centurion in verse 39. These two events signify that the death of the suffering Son of God is not a tragic end, but an event of God's plan, divine fulfillment and revelation. Because you see, the curtain in the temple was a thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells from the rest of the temple. And the Holy of Holies was where God is. And this place is made accessible only once a year, where the Jewish high priest made sacrifice for Israel on the Day of Atonement. It was not a place where you can simply just waltz in, simply can go in. For for you to go in, uh, simply, God's holiness will strike you down. But the destruction of the curtain signifies that at the death of Jesus, the veil between God and man has been removed. The barrier between sinful man and the holy God has now been removed. God is now made accessible to man by the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus on the cross. And the public confession of the Roman centurion is the second event we see. At the death of Jesus, he confesses, truly, this man is the Son of God. The title, the Son of God, proclaims that Jesus comes with the power and authority of God, that he is God. And although we see at the start of Mark's gospel that Marx introduced Jesus as such, the centurion is the first person in the gospel of Mark to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And this confession is evoked by Jesus' suffering and death on the cross for us. There's a branch of study in science and mathematics called the chaos theory. Okay, it's most known for what is called the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect. That is, it says that if you have a butterfly flapping its wings in South America, it can affect the weather in New York Central Park. So a butterfly flaps its wing, weather changes in New York Central Park. And the idea is that seemingly small changes can have huge impact on the entire system. And this is what happens on a cross. A seemingly small, unimportant event on a little hill outside Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion of a condemned criminal, it changes everything. Jesus, the one who came to give eternal life, died. And everything gets turned upside down. Everything changes. Nothing remains the same. We can now have access to God and to eternal life in His presence. Jesus' crucifixion, abandonment, and death, and resurrection shows that He is our King that comes to rescue us. Everything has changed. And this should change the way we live all our lives. Jesus, the King who comes to rescue us, has come. This means how we live our life should change. We should follow Christ as our God and King and seek to bring all of our lives, all areas without exception, under the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story of the master Vasily and his peasant Nikita? At the end of the story, we find that the master actually lies on top of the peasant, 
to shelter him from the snow and to keep him warm through the cold night. For Nikita's sake, Vasily is exposed to the cold and he dies. But Nikita's life is saved. Our king gets crucified as a rebel and criminal. The son gets abandoned and rejected by the father. And the one who comes to give eternal life died. All this for our sake. If this was truly true, if this is actually what happened, what then should be our response? What then should be our response? As you look at the slides behind me, our first response is that Christ's crucifixion, abandonment and death should change our heart's affection and direction. What Christ has done for us on the cross, He was rejected and abandoned so that we will not be rejected and abandoned should evoke in us gratitude and great joy. Is this gratitude and joy that serves as our motivation for gospel obedience? Listen to me carefully here. The Christian life is not just on your self-effort, pulling up your socks and trying harder. That's not the Christian life. But the Christian life is driven by gospel gratitude and joy. We have gratitude and joy because of what God has already done for us. And we can cultivate and nurture this joy and gratitude by daily remembering the gospel, remembering the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And we should daily preach and teach the gospel to ourselves. We should be rehearsing the gospel to ourselves daily so that we will have this joy this gratitude which will motivate our obedience. The second point, we should confess Christ as God and King. Christ as God and King. And here, I'm talking about confessing, not mere profession. Confessing. It's the declaration with both our lips and our lives that Christ is our God and King. It's not just talk only, but talk backed up by action. In the context of the first century church where Christians were persecuted, to confess Christ is to put your life at risk. That is what it means to confess Christ. Are you willing to stake your whole life and risk it for Jesus? The third point, we should follow Christ as God and King. Christ is the Messiah King. He is the Son of God. God has really given him kingship and all authority. And like the knights of old who swore loyalty and duty to their king, we too should submit, submit to our king and follow him as Lord in discipleship in all areas of our lives. God has really raised Jesus as our king and we should follow him in obedience and discipleship. The Gospel writer Mark told his readers, that Jesus, the Messiah King and Son of God, was crucified, abandoned, and died for sinners so that they would have a way to God. And we, as Christians, should confess Christ Jesus as our King and Lord and follow Him in discipleship because His crucifixion, abandonment, and death on the cross provide us the way to God. And as we reflect on this, this first Sunday of 2014, is my prayer that 
May 2014 be a year that Grace Baptist Church joyfully follow Jesus Christ in discipleship for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, this gospel of Christ's crucifixion, abandonment and death on the cross is good news for us. I pray for all of us here that your words and this wonderful news will pierce our hearts and spark in us a new, deep affection for Christ Jesus. Continue to give us grace so that we will confess Jesus as our God and King and to seek to follow Him in all areas of our lives in discipleship. Give us the wisdom to live our lives according to your will so that in all our lives we might honour you in 2014, bringing much good to your church, telling the gospel to our neighbours and bringing glory to Christ's name. Amen.